0: Well, hey, Redemption Church, you guys are happy and you lost an hour of your life even. That is amazing to see you so happy. Well, I am happy too, and I'm happy not only because we're together here, and we get to enjoy Jesus and uh, learn from his word, but today also marks the day that we are kicking off our five days of prayer, and so it's something we've been building up for, and a lot of people have signed up. A lot of the slots are filled. There's a few slots left. They're kind of the early morning slots, because I know you're all early morning people, Um, and so if you would still like to sign up for that, that'd be awesome. If you didn't sign up for a slot and early morning doesn't work for you, uh, you can keep Keep praying anyway with us throughout the week. We're going to start tonight. We're going all the way through Friday evening. And again, we're just going to God saying, God, do what you want to do with Redemption Church. Use it for your purposes. Use it to advance your kingdom. Uh, and, And really, mainly in this, we're saying, God, we want to sense your presence as a church. This whole year is Seek 13, right, which is seeking God's presence as a church so that when people come, they go, man, God is in that place. I mean, that is our heart's prayer. And so we're going to be praying about that a lot this week. And so that's going to be a very cool thing. So. Hopefully you're on the list, and hopefully you're praying with us. If you didn't sign up, like I said, man, you can pray anyway, because uh, we covet prayer all the time. So let's go ahead and pray right now together as it is, and uh, get underway with what Jesus has for us today. Jesus, I thank you for your word. And I, I don't say that in a trivial way. I, I I thank you for it in a very legitimate way, because I know what my life is like when I abide in your word when I pursue the spirit and tenor and tone of your word and I know what life is like when I do not I know that I am far richer and fuller of soul when I am in your word and it is dominating my life and I know that I feel depleted and frustrated and irritated and angry even when it is not and so I pray for all of us that you will just impress this upon us and impress yourself upon us and that we would realize what it means to really be in you, Jesus. That as we kind of round that out even this morning, that you will grip us and show us and inspire us. So we look to you to do all of that work and we look to you to do it because you are the one that accomplishes all things in us. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, right now please open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, as you're on your way to Ephesians 1, I was thinking about the message for this week, the particular text that we're looking at, and uh, my mind was drawn to something that my wife and I are going to be doing in about a month or so, which is um, this gospel parenting class. Uh, We've been doing gospel marriage uh, every other week on Tuesday nights, and and we're getting ready to pass into the parenting stuff here soon. And and it was interesting because I started thinking about parenting and all the different styles that are applied to parenting parenting, and all the different styles that we experience when it comes to the context of parenting people. Maybe you have been subjected to some styles, right? When you were growing up, your parents might have had a particular angle or approach, and that was their style, and you experienced that. And maybe even as a parent, you have subjected your children to certain styles of parenting because there's a lot of styles. There's a lot of venues for it. There's a lot of methodology behind it. What's interesting for me is uh, when Ellen and I are interacting with, with divorced families, that is where it's most interesting because what you actually see is that all families kind of, kind of go to different ends of a spectrum in parenting, but when it's a divorced circumstance, and I, I grew up in a divorced environment, uh, you see kind of the, the styles polarized between the parents. So you have one parent that's the buddy parent, Right? And the buddy parent just wants to be the kid's friend, right? So they have a lot of levity, they have a lot of uh, kind of laxed disposition. Hey, do what you want, I just want to be your friend, I want to be chummy. And that's sort of how they parent, right? So you get that one end of the spectrum. Then you get the other end of the spectrum because you get the other parent that says, well, I have to counterbalance that. So they counterbalance with the statement, I'm not my child's friend, I'm their parent. Right? And kind of the approach they bring is to make sure that there is some rigidity and some controls because there's the absence of controls on the other side. And so those are sort of the extremes that get experienced in parenting, right? The latter sometimes then parents from the posture of lots of lecture, lecture, and the former spends a lot of time trying to figure out how they can party with their kids, right? So you get kind of both ends of that spectrum. And so parenting is not an easy gig. I don't try to pretend that it is. I don't even try to make a statement on parenting, except that trying to figure out the best way to parent is very challenging, right? Do you woo with subjectivism and relativism, or do you force with criticism and legalism and rule? Uh, what do you do? And again, this is the stuff that we, we sometimes deal with. What's interesting for me, then, as I think about that, is when I look at the book of Ephesians. Because really, in my opinion, at the core of Ephesians... What we see, what we've been introduced to, is a parent. We've been introduced to a father who is showing us how he chooses to parent his adoptive kids. right? And the challenge for this father parenting these adoptive kids is these adoptive kids have been spoiled by the world. These kids that he's taken in as his own are very street-wise in what they do. Right? They have bad habits, they are perpetually around bad influences, and so this father, God, is teaching how he chooses to parent some pretty challenging kids from a pretty challenging background, right? That's the whole mission. And so the question becomes, well, how exactly is he going to parent these kids of his that he has adopted? How is he going to employ a certain methodology? What is that going to look like? How is he going to see it function? When he rolls into parent, the first words that he says, what are they going to be? Are they going to be, this is what you should do? Or this is what you don't do? Or, this is what you should never do? What I love about Ephesians chapter 1 is that God begins this great enterprise of parenting. And I think the, probably the most ideal place a parent can. He starts in the place of motivation. He starts in the place where he wants his kids to know, this is how I love you. This is how I see you. This is how I've taken you in. This is how I've equipped you. This is how i inspired you. This is how I've set you up for greatness. And so when you know who you are, when you know the value you have, when you know how I see you, from that, that is the motivator for your life to be great. So he starts in this place of saying, this is who you are because of what I have done. Not because of what you've done. Not because you always measure up. Not because you figured it out. But because I, as a good and loving Father, see you in this light. I want you to know how you're seen. I want you to see your value so then you can live the fullest life you can. Because you know how I view you. That's what's so mind-blowing about Ephesians 1. Of all of the things he could do, he says, I want you to know how I see you. And so Paul opens with this eruption of praise in verse 3. I want to read the whole text because this is one big long sentence, right? I don't want us to lose the flow. So he starts in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul opens up in the first few verses right there, and he tells us without wavering, God did. Here's what God did. God did bless us, and that blessing carries on. And God did choose us, and that choosing carries on. And God did predestine us, and that predestination has a destination that it carries on to. And God did adopt us, and it carries on. And all of it is in Christ, in Christ, ancient grace in Christ. He says that's what God did as our Father, because he wanted us. And then at one core moment in the fullness of time, that ancient grace is thrust into the flow of human history and becomes redemptive grace. Verse 7, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Grace is a major theme In Christ is a major theme. This grace He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So as much as verses 3 through 6 are about what God did, here it's about what Jesus has done Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has forgiven us. Jesus has graced us. Jesus has purposed us. All in Him, all according to redemptive grace. And so we see Paul's big idea in all of this. He wants us to understand the center point of the human experience. He wants us to understand the center point of the Christian experience as human beings. He wants us to get the fact that, again, it is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's why as a church we say it's all about Jesus. Right? When we say it's all about Jesus, we don't just say that because it's a nice little tagline because we want to make sure we use the name of Jesus. We say that because what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is it's all about Jesus, right, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, him, by his grace, right, major thrust, major theme, and now we get to this third layer in this one opening sentence, 202 words, right, and he gets to this third culminating part where he's making much, not just of ancient grace or redemptive grace, but also present grace, And present grace plays out in verse 11 when it says, in him, again, in him, we have been obtained, we have been obtained as an inheritance. Now some versions will actually say here uh, that we are recipients of an inheritance, right? It puts it on us. And and I I get that, and that's not an unbiblical idea, it's very biblical that we have a future inheritance, that is true. Right? But what's being said here is something about God. This whole section, verse three to verse 14, is saying much of God, much of Jesus, and as we will see, much of the Holy Spirit. And so this is about God right here. right? What He has done is He's obtained us as His inheritance. Because we have been radically changed. We have been converted in value. We have been fully and totally reformed in our standing. And so God looks at us and he says, I want you as my portion. Of all the treasure I could have, you are my treasure. Of all the want I would want, you're the one I want. You are the absolute supreme thing I want in all creation. I want you. Right? And I think this is so important because the more we understand our position in Christ, the more we understand our value because of Christ, the more we can live from that. We spend a lot of life worrying about what other people think, worrying about what we think, and not enough worrying about what God thinks. Or sometimes when we worry about what God thinks, we think that God just sees us in a bad light or a shameful light or he's always waiting to jump on us, right? That's not what Paul says here. He says, don't you get it? You are chosen, adopted, redeemed, changed, loved. I mean, all of it. You, he says, I want you as the greatest treasure. The greatest treasure. He says, literally, as his portion. Right? You are the best of the... You're like the 10%. You are like the spotless lamb. You are the first fruits. That's really what Paul sees us as, as God's people. It's like God says, that's, that is what I desire. Do you realize that's how God loves you? That's how God wants you? That's how God sees you? And do you realize that's how God sees your fellow Christians around you? See, sometimes you go, I love the God that sees me this way, but that guy's an idiot. Right? God couldn't see that guy that way because that guy's blowing it as though we're not. No, if that guy knows Christ, he's in Christ, and this is how God sees him. If you're in Christ, this is how God sees you. He says, you are my inheritance. I want you as my portion. And I love this, this whole idea of of we have been obtained. It's interesting. Uh, Back in verse 4, it says, we were chosen right, before the foundations of the world. It's this active word. God says, I want you. So he chooses you. Here it's the exact same word in the original language, but in a passive, which means, and equally, God receives you. So he does both things simultaneously. It's that crazy paradox of how God works. He's the author. He's the finisher. God punishes and is punished. God is judge and judged. Because he says, I choose you and I receive you to myself. Because he wanted you, me, us, as his greatest treasure. So I know sometimes we hear this, and go, oh man, that's just feel-goodism. No, 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 that's just good sound theology. It's theology that motivates for life. Not only does he want you as his inheritance, he's always wanted you. Verse 11 continues, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, this has always been the plan. And it's not because God looks at Matt Boswell and says, I see what's in Matt Boswell's heart, so I want Matt Boswell. No, it's because of what is in God's heart that God wants Matt Boswell. Because God sees what's in my heart, and it's not terribly redeeming. It is not truly useful. I am not God's gift to anything. But God in his own heart, his own grace, and his own mercy says, I have always made it my purpose. According to the counsel of my will, to want Matt, to want you, 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 anybody in Christ. He goes, I've always wanted that. Now, sometimes when we see that word predestined, this is the second time we've seen it in this section, right? We go, uh-oh, there's that debate. No, it's affirmation. Don't go down all the roads of what does this mean and what are the implications, because all Paul's saying is, don't you know again, this is how far out of God's way he went for you. It's always been a part of the plan, always in predestination. It's always been according to the purpose of him, which means he has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me, right? And that purpose is playing out toward all things. All things. And when it says all things here, in the original language, all things literally means all things. Right? All things are working out to his will. All things are working out according to a plan that God has in his heart. I don't understand that. That's a mystery to me. But again, here's why Paul says it. Not so we go down all these philosophical dilemma trails, but so that we might take courage Because if God can predestine you and God can choose you and God can bless you and God can change you, God can redeem you and God can forgive you, then you ready? God can handle your daily problems. God can handle your baggage, your junk, your anger, your fear, your frustration. He can handle your enemies. He can handle your friends that aren't always your friends. He can handle your spouse and your kids and your money and your country. He can handle all of that. Because he's big enough for everything else, so he's big enough for that. And so it goes back to us going, okay, if he can handle it, if all things are working according to the counsel of his will, if all things work to good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, then what do I do in the light of that truth? Because that's why this is here. It's to say, you can have confidence to do what God calls you to do because God is working things out. So what do we do? Here's some things. No matter what comes our way. Ready? Ready? Rejoice. Rejoice. See, sometimes we refuse to rejoice because we don't trust God's in control. We go, no, no, everything's spitting out of control. Everything is hitting the fan and going all over the walls. How can I rejoice? Because we're commanded to rejoice. Right? think about Paul, imprisoned, stabbed in the back, abandoned my friends, criticized for his preaching, criticized for his mission, hated by his government, hated by his kinsmen. And he says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice in a prison. Right? He rejoiced regardless of the circumstance. And we should rejoice. Why? Because again, we've been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. That's why I stress all things. No, no, no. All things isn't my mortgage. All things isn't my life situation. All things isn't my disappointment. No. All things. So rejoice. Also thank. Thank him. Right? What does Paul say? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. We need to thank more. When we are fearful, think. When we are happy, think. When life is good, think. When life is hard, think. Think. It shapes your perspective. Right? If we refuse to thank, if we refuse to rejoice, you know what we're going to do? We're going to become bitter. And we're just going to have a thousand arguments in our head. We're going to make 10,000 cases that just wear us down and cause us to lose sleep. Paul knows, and so he'd say, because this is true, rejoice. Because this is true, thank. Because this is true, you do pray, right? I know it's a lot easier to worry or complain than pray. I know that. It's a lot easier to rant than pray. But prayer actually gets things done. Ranting is just ranting. Right? Plunking away on the email, all capitals. <laughs> yes, I am angry! Just does that. Prayer gets things done. So we rejoice, we think, we pray. Here's another thing, because God is working at all things according to the purpose of Him who has this counsel and will. Obey. Obey. I'll tell you when Christians most struggle with obedience um, all the time, all right? So, um, no, here, here's what I mean by this, right? So, we either struggle with it proactively, we go, I want to go do this thing that I know God doesn't want me to do, so we get tempted to go do it, so we do that, or we struggle reactively When somebody else does something to us, and then God calls us to a certain standard to respond in a certain way, and we go, no, 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 I'm not going to obey that because they drew first blood. Right? I'm not going to do that because they've offended me, they've hurt me, they've wronged me, and as soon as you do something to me, I'm allowed to do something to you, and I'm not held responsible because you started it. Right? Right? I mean, this is, this is what happens. I'm not saying that our attitude is consciously that way. I'm just saying that's the place we end up defaulting to at times, right? So uh, we, we go, hey, I'm trying to be nice. This person's being my enemy, and now that they're being my enemy, we forget that God calls us to love our enemy, do good to our enemy, pray for our enemy, give our enemy cold water. We would rather be like, can I just give them a kick to the face because that would make me feel much better, much better. Do I really need to exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, when people around me are being fools? Or can I just kind of unload, just have the Gatlin gun of critique and criticism in Jesus' name, right? Right? That, that, that's always going to be the struggle, and we do that because we're not... Rejoicing, thinking, praying, and obeying. We start to react instead of respond. See, the ultimate thing here when it comes to rejoicing, thinking, praying, and obeying is trust. Do we really trust that all things really do work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Do we trust it? See, it's real easy to be like, hey, I I affirm this book. It's truth, right? Right? We need to defend the truth. We've got to make sure that the truth can be in the public forum. Why do they want to kick the truth out of our culture? We need to really make sure that we fight for truth. And I say, that's right, we need to fight for truth. You know where we fight for truth most? It's not on a courthouse lawn. It's not in some legal setting. It's in our home. It's in our life. It's in our mind. It's how we do life. That's how we defend this. If we make this some poster child for religious persecution, but we don't actually rejoice, think, pray, obey, and trust, who cares? Who cares at that point? It doesn't really matter because we're missing the big idea. Paul wants us to know man, you've got an adoptive dad that loves you, chose you, redeemed you, forgives you, grows you, shapes you, and has a plan. For you, so you can rejoice, thank, pray, obey, and trust. Why? Because again, you know, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. It's his purpose, work, plan, decree, reason, goal, beginning, end, his. And we keep in mind for kind of the reason it all exists. Verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of His glory, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. This is so rich, because what we see here is praise is not the byproduct of salvation, it is the purpose of salvation. This is what you're most made for. It's what I'm most made for. That's why I'm trying to get us to that point that says, you know what, no matter what comes my way, no matter how bad my day, no matter how much everybody seems against me, I will praise him because I'm most built for that. And I guarantee you, if you choose praise, if you choose praise and hardship and pain and suffering, you force yourself to take the character of God and just walk through it. Right? Out loud, with tenacity. God, you are good. You are kind. You are righteous. You are just. You've made me promises. You will handle all the vengeance. You will handle all the junk, and I will be rewarded in faith. If you praise him, it will change your attitudes. It'll rescue you from the enslavement of bitterness and frustration and anger and discouragement and a sense that life has just beat you up and left you for dead. But you have to know who you are in Him. You have to know who you are in Him. Your purpose, the motive He has for you, the intent for which He saved you, right? To praise more. Praise is the antidote to fear and anger and worry and attitude. It's the antidote because it's the pinnacle of our purpose. And so Paul is just nailing this. Man, this is why you're saved. This is what it means. And then he says there's an engine that drives all of this praise. Verse 13. He says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I, this is such a great section. I'm going to break it down for just a second because, again, there's so many little layers in here that are critical. Like, they build these different steps to this final idea. First of all, you notice that it says, again, in him you also. This is the tenth time Paul has said in him or in Christ or in the beloved. Right? He just can't say it enough. So he says, in him you also. Like Here's another time. Here's another example of how you're in Christ, how everything hinges on being in him. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. He's going to build toward a conclusion, but he's going to first say, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. One stage. Here's what's great about this. The word is the vehicle of transformation. Right? It is. It's the vehicle of transformation. The Bible is not an opinion among opinions. Notice Paul has no problem saying the word of truth. Let me explain to you the the world that Paul lived in. Paul lived in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was many gods. There was many ways to heaven, or no heaven, or nirvana, or whatever it might be. There's just many ways to many things. There was many ideas and many opinions, and all of them were right. It was a very pluralistic culture. It was very relative in its morals. Isn't it nice that we don't live in that? Right? It's pretty convenient. No, we have the exact same problem. And sometimes we get very worried about saying, this is true. We go, oh, there's no big T truths. There's just a lot of varying opinions. Some more helpful, some less helpful, but they're all opinions. And Paul was say, no, 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 no. There has always been truth. It's okay to say this is truth. It's okay to say there's one way. It's okay to say God is revealed and it is the sole standard. And so Paul says it's only by truth that you've seen. It was because you heard the word of truth. Not some varying opinion. And I think even in some ways, as we think about that, an understanding that it's the word of truth that liberates and frees and everything else, it means that Christians have to resolve what they really do with this book. I mean, what they really do. See, because it's, it's easy to, to see it, to read it or to hear it, um, and then avoid it even as a Christian. And if you read it and you avoid it, then you just make this a history book. That's it. Or maybe a different standard, a little more up the scale. Uh, You read it, but then you pick and choose it. Um, I I, I like these moral things, but I don't like these attitude things. Um, I like these attitude things, but I don't want to really comply to moral things. I like that grace saves, but I don't like that grace sanctifies and changes me. See, if you pick and choose it, what this becomes then is an advisory. That's it. For the first person, it's history. For the pick and choose it, it's just an advisory. But for the person that says, you know what, I read it. I'm going to do all of it. Not perfectly perfectly. I'll fail, I'll blow it, or whatever. But my goal is to do all of it. My goal is not to say, ah, it doesn't fit, ah, it doesn't work, situation's bad, I don't know if I'm gonna apply it. No, I want to do it fully. Then it is truth in your life. It's true no matter whether you do it or not, but it's truth applied. And see, in the case of the Ephesians, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you really took it in, when you really grabbed it, it had transformation. That transformation chiefly because that word of truth was the gospel of their salvation, he says, right? The gospel of your salvation. It's not just good news, it's good truth. And it's a powerful truth. Notice it says your salvation. It's personal. It's personal for you. Again, I go back to this. God said, I want you. So it's personal. It's also powerful because it's the gospel. The declaration of victory. That's what good news means. God is one in your life. You are more than a conqueror. Again, know who you are. Know who you are. Know who your fellow Christian is next to you. When you seek to encourage or admonish your fellow Christian, remind them of who they are, not what they're not doing. Did you catch that? remind them of who they are what they have in him not simply what they're not doing you might have to address hey you didn't handle this right hey you need to maybe address this thing, but you do that from the platform of don't you know you already have victory don't you know you're more than a conqueror don't you know how loved you are you're a child of the king you have everything for life and godliness he's given you every blessing in spiritual places you motivate you motivate that is the good news of your salvation it's personal it's powerful and it's rooted in Him. He says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. Salvation is not by our works, our enlightenment, our idols, our efforts, or our responsibility. What it is, is we said we take Jesus at His word, we yield to Him as our Lord, and He saves. See, the, the hardest truth for people sometimes to realize is that in heaven, there are no good people. There are no good people in heaven. Right? When we talk to people, and they'll be like, you know, when I die someday, I'm going to get up there. I'll go to the pearly gates. Peter will be hanging out there like, like he's the guardian of the gate. Like, how did I get this job? You know? And um, we go. Uh, when I get there, I'll just go to Peter, and I'll say, um, I was a good person. And, and Peter might say, Sure. By all human standards, you were a very good person. That's, that's so, such a bummer that that is not the entrance into this place. This place is not loaded up with good people. It doesn't have a single good person in here. No good people allowed. Only gospel people. Only people that say, you know what? I heard the word of truth, the gospel of my salvation, and I believed in him. He says, that was you. That's what happened with you. And because you believed, verse 13 says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is big, man. Because again, go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was very transient. He didn't hang out all the time with everybody. In fact, if anything, he would kind of come and go, and he'd only come and go on select people. A king, a prophet, a priest, uh, something of that nature that was really doing a major movement of God. But it wasn't like the average dude just kind of shoeing a horse would get the Holy Spirit. And if he did, he wasn't sticking around long. He was going to bolt, Right? But now the promise is fulfilled, and the promise is the Holy Spirit will come, and he will dwell. And not just with the king, not just with the prophet, not just with the priest, not just with the one that's changing the flow of human history, but with everyone. So Paul's thinking about these Ephesians, and he goes, isn't it mind-blowing that you used to be a pagan, and now you have the Holy Spirit of promise? Isn't that incredible? You used to be a prostitute, and now you have the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing that you used to be a slave trader, and now the Spirit of God lives in you permanently? Now, I don't know your past. You don't fully know my past. Here's what I think is mind-boggling. Whatever that is, and whatever our current struggle, whatever our current problem, he still chooses to permanently indwell us. Because that is what God is up to. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Promise long before you and I ever showed up on this planet. That was his promise. In fact, this word sealed is great. It describes like a like a wax seal on a letter, right? That it would just authenticate that document. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, because you were sealed, you were secured. You are in him. He says, you're mine. You're my possession. You're my inheritance. You're my treasure. So you're mine. You're sealed. You're secure. You're authenticated. I've double-checked Checked checked you twice. You are fully in. You are genuine. You are mine. It's like being sealed in the Holy Spirit. is where he says, um, uh, you know, they were born once, dead in sins. Then they're born again, and I have that birth certificate. They're mine. And sealed under me, and they will never not be mine. That's because we were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice the wording here. Um, it, it's not saying you have God's seal. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say you have God's seal. It says, "God is your seal. God is your seal. He, he gives that much. He is your family crest. Because you're in his family. It's awesome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing there. He says, God has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised to us. Right? That is what he's given. And, and what this really is at the core, what Paul is communicating about the Holy Spirit, is that he is the evidence of heaven laid in the souls of people. See, we'll say sometimes, I want to know if there's a heaven, right? I want to know. And what Paul would say, well, here's the greatest evidence God has ever given. He gives you the Holy Spirit as the evidence of heaven. And you think about what the Holy Spirit does. He is the spirit of gifts dispositions, understanding, strength, mission, association, wisdom, empowerment, unity, assurance, comfort, faith, hope, love, and completion. The Holy Spirit, He is radical. He's logical but inconceivable. He's safe but dangerous, comforting but terrifying, familiar but supernatural. I mean, this is uh, who He is in our lives all of that to say there really is a heaven. You really are saved. God really is on the move and carrying out a plan. Now I know sometimes you go, "Ah, oh, I'd rather have the videotape, the proof of heaven. If you could just give me just, just a brick of one of the streets in heaven, just a gold brick out and say heaven street, that would be awesome proof. But see, the most powerful proof that there is heaven, that there is a God and that he saves and changes is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because only he can get to the deepest part of us. Only he can do what nothing else can do. See, we look at some people's lives and we go, man, they've got heaven on earth. They've got a nice house, nice cars, plenty of money, great vacations. Everything looks perfect on the outside. But none of that makes a person complete on the inside. None of it. That's why you see wealthy people and famous people just disintegrate. Because you can't buy heaven, you can't secure heaven on earth because the deepest part of us needs something more. And God says, I have proven heaven by giving the Holy Spirit in the souls of people so that they might, at the deepest level of their person, know life. The peace of heaven in the human heart, it's what he offers. In fact, in verse 14, he says, It is the Spirit dwelling in us. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession? This is a great little picture here. Here's what it is uh, God says, um, the Holy Spirit is like earnest money. Right? So if you're gonna go buy a house, um, what you do is you put down earnest money, and a lot of times we put down the earnest money, and then we say, but this is contingent on an inspection. And if the inspection's good, then again, we're going to move forward with the house. So there's usually, here's earnest money, and here's a contingency based on inspection. See, what, what Paul wants us to understand is that God says, I'm giving the Holy Spirit as earnest money. Don't worry, I already did the inspection, and I want it anyway. I want it anyway. I know exactly what I'm buying. I know exactly what I'm making covenant with. I know exactly whom I'm adopting. I know exactly who I'm going to bless with every spiritual blessing. I know exactly who is going to be my possession. I know exactly who I'm giving my full inheritance to. I know exactly who is going to sit on the throne with my son. I put down the deposit. I put down the earnest money. It doesn't matter what they're like because of my grace, because of my purpose, because of my plan, because of my love. What's great about this, too, is that God, in this guarantee of giving the Spirit, is the guarantee that, you know what, He's going to grow us more and more to what we're eventually to become anyway. He loves us so much, He doesn't just leave us in the state. He's going to grow us into that completion. We're never going to experience that full completion in this life. That's going to be in the life to come. But in this life, He's going to grow us. That's the promise, right? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, it says in Philippians. He's going to do it. Now, we all grow different. There's going to be some of us that, that grow like this. Right? And you're like, is he going up at all? Yeah, he's going up. I think he's going up. I don't know. But some of us grow like that. You bear, we, we just barely grow. And a lot of times, the rest of us are looking at it. That, that guy's just he's never growing. He's, he's just so mature. There are some people like that. Jesus says there's some that bear 30, some produce 60, some produce 100. People grow different. And the person that grows real slow like that they're going to face a lot of hardship, poor decision. There's going to be a lot of consequence to their actions. It doesn't mean that God isn't taking them on to completion. It just means that in this life, they're probably going to see a certain level of uh, missing out, um, maybe a certain level of suffering, and never really knowing the fullness of what they could have had. But, but he's growing them, right? There's others that grow like this. Right? So they're going up, but, man, it's, you're a roller coaster, Right? So you're the person like, I love God, he's awesome, I love my sin, it's awesome, right? Like, right, and then God says, I love you, spank you, all right, I'm back on with God, all right, let's go this way, right? And and that might be your life, that was David, David was that, all the way, but God's taking you on to completion, and you're going to suffer, It's going to be consequence, it's going to hurt, but he's taking you on to completion. And then there's others that are just like this, right? They're just going, they just grow, they're disciplined, they're focused, they're all those things. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We just sometimes yield to him to greater or lesser degree, but he's working out something in us because God is committed to the plan. The plan is, before the foundations of the world, I wanted you, I loved you, I redeemed you, I did all of this, and I'm growing you. Because you're my possession. And so, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, drives home in just this handful of verses how God sees us, how He, as a Father, motivates us, how He defines us, and how He wants us to define ourselves. And so, in this opus of inspiration, boldly calls into our souls and says you know what know the kid that you are and know what god has done it declares god did right god did bless us so you can live blessed and god did choose us so you can know that you are loved and god did adopt us so you can live as a kid of the king and it says jesus has redeemed us so that we are no longer slaves and he has forgiven us so that we no longer dwell in guilt and shame and he has graced us so that we can live out God's purpose and plan. And this is played out daily because the Spirit is our daily empowerment. The Spirit is our perpetual encouragement. The Spirit is our eternal endowment. It's all because of him. Jesus Uh, God did, Jesus has, spirit is, so that in Him you are. Only in Him. It's not in us in any way. It's only in Him we are loved and wanted and rescued and changed and used and grown and celebrated. And one day we will be completed to the praise of His glory. Paul lands in the pinnacle of why we exist Right? That we exist to praise His wisdom and His power, His might and His splendor, His plan and His power, His calling and His commands, His mercy and His grace, His forgiveness and sacrifice, suffering and generosity patience and opulence. We praise all of it all the time for God you are good and God you are kind and the more we focus on what we are in Christ, what we've received through Him, the more we can praise Him all the time regardless of the conditions and find freedom in that because ultimately what we see here is that we are saved to praise the glory of the wanting Father, to praise the glory of the giving Son and to praise the glory of the indwelling Spirit, Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would live our life in you and that our heart would be looking at one another that we would want each other to live their life in you. Not merely in compliance or not merely worrying about getting caught. Not merely because we are self-determined not merely because it is the responsible thing, but because we are absolutely and utterly desperate for you and because we are absolutely and utterly convinced of what you have done. That you would be the motive. That your praise would be the goal. And that we would live every single day in light of hungering and thirsting to that end. I pray you would satisfy us so much, that you would shape us so much, that we would be under, uh, you know, kind of, we would understand the value that you see us as so much, that it would motivate our rejoicing, our thankfulness, our prayers, our obedience, ultimately our trust. We love you and need you in your name. Amen.